96, we had $408,000 of revenue. Then 97, we had $1.8 million of revenue. Then 98, we had seven, almost $8 million of revenue. 99, we had $23 million of revenue went public. And we went public on December 9th, 1999, right before the end of the century, right in the heart of the internet bubble. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. This is a very, very special episode for you here today. You may have noticed in the podcast player a little bit longer than usual, but that's because I had to create some room for today's guest, Glenn Meekham, to drop a ton of wisdom, leadership insights, entrepreneurial perspectives on you here today. What you're about to listen to will be very in line if you enjoyed the interviews with Jason Wolf or Dr. Gordon Vanskoy. Glenn is a incredibly accomplished entrepreneur with a bunch of war stories to share. He led, uh, founded and led the company Free Markets to an IPO in 1999, an exceptionally rare occurrence for a Pittsburgh-based company and a incredibly interesting time for a company to IPO. Free Markets at one point was valued at $13 billion, came crashing back down to earth as the tech bubble popped. Glenn and I talk about its rise, the lessons he learned about building a team and expanding his revenue along the way. We also talk about his new company forever and his experience venture investing. You'll hear that Glenn is one heck of a historian. He is a heck of a storyteller, and he brings an energy and a vitality to his work that I deeply aspire to uh, when I am at a similar age. I think you're going to take a lot from it. If you want to get around other people with that energy, with that buzz like Glenn, then you should mark your calendars for March 28th, our event, the Going Deep Summit, will be happening in downtown Pittsburgh with a fantastic lineup of speakers, a amazing assembly of fellow ambitious strivers, doers, builders, thinkers, and uh, it is a day that the Piper team has put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into making one to remember. So uh, get your tickets, goingdeepsummit.com. And while you're doing that, listen to this conversation with Glenn Meekham. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. My pleasure for being here, Aaron. I am super excited. Uh, there's so much of your career with all sorts of different uh, twists and turns that we have to unpack. I even did a little bit of snooping, talking to some past uh, employees and team members at Free Markets really? that we're going to bring some questions up later on. But to start things off, we're in the forever.com office. Yes. That is your current entrepreneurial endeavor. I'm sure there's probably others, you know, ones that you're... Uh, marinating on on the side. But just to start things off, the concept is to help families store their media in all sorts of different forms in perpetuity. So right. take us uh, through- Yeah, the problem, is people, the problem is people right now lack privacy Yeah, and they also lack permanence and completeness. So you can, I won't mention any competitors in the podcast, but you can, there's a lot of photo sites where you can upload photos and then print out books or cards or whatever. But- most of those sites have the business model where if you stop printing, they have, you know, they'll give you 12 months, 18 months, maybe even 24 months. But then if you stop printing, they'll delete all your stuff. And of course, everybody gets old someday. So by definition, everyone is going to stop printing. 
Yeah. Which means all of their stuff will be deleted. Yeah. Same thing. There's other competitors who in the pure cloud. So that's in the like photo printing space. Then there's pure cloud storage players. And their model is pay us money every month. And if you stop paying, and I just, you know, one of the best known ones, I just, I had this experience myself recently where I had an account for a while. I used it for a while for some business stuff. And then I stopped using it. And it wasn't important to me because I had a forever account and everything else. And, um, and what happened was, well, they kept, you know, 12 months went by. I didn't pay. And then they kept sending me an email. Hey, pay us or we're going to delete you. Pay us. We're going to, and finally, after about six more months of that, they deleted me. And so, you know, again, and everybody's going to get old. Everybody's going to get to a point where they're not paying that every month. And so by definition, everything will be deleted. And so, or, or think about, on, there's other competitors of ours who convert digital media and big deal. You take an old DVD or an old VHS tape or an old 16 millimeter piece of film, real film reel from the 1920s, say if your great grandparents had that in the family, or, or an eight millimeter from your, when your parents were you know, kids, and you send that in and get it digitized and it comes back to you on a thumb drive. Yeah. Great. But where do you, or, and you put that on your PC. But the problem is every PC and every Mac is going to crash eventually. They're all, you know, so nothing, it's permanent. And so the, that was my, that was my, I'm a family memory. I know I've, I've, I've been married for 30 years. I have five children. I've got, um, my father has passed away, but my mother's alive. I have, you know, in-laws. I have, we've done some family history research. We have a lot of this content and it's important content. The story of our family yeah. and the story of what we've learned is important. And where does that live long-term? It doesn't learn, live on a photo print site where it's going to get deleted if you stop printing. It doesn't live in a typical, you know, cloud storage site where if you stop paying every month, it goes away. It needs, it needs a, a family needs to have a permanent digital home for that stuff. Yeah. So that was the core of the idea for forever.com. I realized, where do I keep my stuff long-term? Even if I've used, there's some really cool sites. I'll mention Ancestries. Ancestry is a very cool site to do research. But when you've done all that research and pulled all that information together, where do you keep it long-term? Oh, oh, and social media. So how do you keep stuff on Facebook or Instagram? It's very, very transactional. It's great to share today and be in touch with people today, tomorrow. But then even pictures you saw a month ago, it's very hard to even search and even find them. Yeah. And, oh, and maybe, maybe it'll be saved somewhere, but will your child be able to find it? I don't think so. So again, whether it's social media, whether it's photo printing, whether it's cloud storage or digital conversion, none of these services are built for the long term. So what we did with Forever was we said what the world needs, families need, and oh, and not businesses, because businesses want to destroy stuff after a few years. They don't want to keep files long, right? So hey, if you're if you're a business, Google Drive or Drop, I'll mention some names, right? Google Drive, Dropbox is fine because you don't really care long term. But if you're a family, you want stuff to last long term. So where do you go to keep your digital memories permanently? And oh, by the way, if I'm going to keep them all, if I'm going to put all the family photos in one place and all the family video, not just the stuff I'm converting from the past, but all the stuff off my phone today, if I'm going to keep that all in one place, I've got to be able to print my photo card, my, my holiday cards from there. And if I want to do a photo book honoring my, uh, my mother at her birthday, I've got to be able to, or if I want to do a photo book for my wife's birthday or whatever, it's, or for Valentine's day, or I want to, um, I want to be able to stream all my video and see it on my phone. I need to be able to do all, or I want to create a really cool slideshow that I can look on my phone or I could project it at a family event. I need to be able to do all that. If I'm going to keep everything in one place, I need to be able to do all that memory keeping in one place. So that's forever, forever.com. A friend of mine, I was describing this to them. He described it as, oh, so it's, it's like my private cloud forever. It's like, yeah, that's right. It's your private cloud forever. It's the place... 
your private place. Oh, and oh, and nobody's data mining. There's no advertising. Yeah. So it's not like YouTube or Facebook or something where, or you know, even uh, Gmail. Every single time I put any content at all online, they know all about me. Yeah. Just and they because you have pictures with the dog, they're not going to start selling you dog collars and food. Exactly. So this is so people need permanence. They also need some privacy. And so that's what forever.com is. It's your private, personal, permanent place in the cloud to do all your family memory keeping. And there's all succession settings. So, oh, I can say that I've got some private content I really don't want to share during my lifetime. But the day after I die, I want my family to be able to see that. Or maybe 10 years after I die. Or maybe 50 years after I die. Wow. You know, I can set things to be shared that way because it's endowed for life. I, when I buy forever storage, I'm whether I buy on a monthly pl- payment plan or whether I buy with an upfront payment, I'm buying a certain number of gigabytes forever. And it's so the model is, you know, and, and it costs much more than it would just for that month. You know, the monthly payment for 10 gigs would be very, very tiny. Well, it's not that much at forever either, but it's it's more, you know, it's for list price for 10 gigabytes forever is $199. And most of that money is going into the Forever Guarantee Fund, which is like a long-term, it's like a university endowment for my photos. Wow. So I'm endowing my future by putting this money, by putting this money with Forever and that money, that money's going to a a pool, like just like a university endowment or like an insurance, a life insurance reserve fund. And it's a pool of money that's invested to generate capital gains and dividends and interest. And that will, and with a small distribution every year to pay for that year's cloud storage. And so based on the, the, those economics, we guarantee when you, when you join forever, you buy a forever storage account, you buy your first 10 gigs or 100 gigs, or whatever it is, that money, you put, you're putting money in the forever guarantee fund and you are, we're guaranteeing that we will keep your stuff private we will we will be the guarantor we will be the guardian of your digital property your digital life for your lifetime plus 100 years guaranteed and i would guarantee longer than 100 years because the business model is designed to be in perpetuity yeah but our lawyers said ah, you know more than 100 years is kind of lawyers they'll tend to but, do that. but we so we basically say you know we guarantee your lifetime plus 100 years with a goal of many, many, many generations beyond. So, what's so interesting in and hearing that is, this, and, and that is forever. Let me get the and that is forever.com. And everybody listening to this should go check it out at forever.com. Right on. So, so what's so interesting about this idea is it ties into another concept that we've, you know, both is actually part of the founding principle of the company Piper, but also something we've explored in different stuff that we've made, which is this notion of a family lineage that used to be the thing for kings and queens and they'd have the castle and the books and the records of everything. But in this modern age where there's, you know, media making tools and technologies that are available to more or less everybody, the capacity for you to build that family lineage here now today relative to any other time in history is completely unparalleled. But the storage aspect of that Definitely goes by the wayside. Yeah, where do you keep it? How do you interact with it? How do you, how do you keep your own digital property? How do you share effectively with with Forever? There's all kinds of social tools to share. You know, with you can have all your family members have Forever accounts, and you can share. You can you can send links and let people see even outside Forever family to to see you know different content. So, yeah, it's it's a solution. We're doing, and, and it's not, we're not perfect. We've been at it for seven years, but we're not perfect. But every every month we just bang away. We make it better and better and better. And we listen to our clients. We have tens of thousands of paying clients. And so we're a real business and we listen and we improve all the time. And yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. We're letting people use 
basically we're filling this massive hole, which is, yeah, the tools are out there to create all this content, but how does it live long-term and how do I safeguard it? Well, we're, we're, we're the solution to that. And that's, and of course I was able to buy the, the domain forever.com that helps, which was, and it's like the perfect name for what we do. Yeah. So when we talk about these other companies and I'm, I'm not asking you to, to, to bash them to too much of right. a degree, but in, in terms of just pure analysis, your acknowledgement of the endowment and the incentives kind of baked into building something that way aligns your incentives with your customer. And, and often Correct. the issue isn't necessarily that there's like an explicit nefarious or malicious intent by the business. It's just they've been built in a way that their right. incentives are misaligned with that oh, goal. Oh, absolutely. These, I mean, you know, hey, these are awesome businesses, but it's just, yeah, if you're, a, if you are Google and you're, and, and yeah, it's awesome that they provide this free email service, Gmail to everybody in the world. But there's a trade-off, right? You're really, every, you know, one of the founding principles of American, you know, Amer the United States of America is the oldest regime in the world, oldest continuously. And we, we, we have lived under one constitution for what, over 230 years. That's yeah. older than any. So we're a new country relative, you know, for, compared to other countries ethnically, because we're not really a single ethnic country, but we've we've lived under the same legal structure, the same constitution longer by far than any other country. We're, we're by far the most successful country in the history of humanity. And one of the founding principles of that democracy under the rule of law was private mail. The U.S. Postal Service goes right back to the, like the, the U.S. Army was founded in 1775, a year before the Declaration of Independence. The U.S. P Postal Service, I don't know the exact date, I think it was pretty pretty soon thereafter, maybe 1777. I forget exactly, but having private mail was a cornerstone of private speech, of First Amendment, you know, private speech, free speech rights, and and that was sacrosanct. Even when I was growing up, so I was born in 1964. I'm about to turn 56. When I was growing up in the 70s, as a precocious, you know, school student and stuff, the notion of the private mail was this sacrosanct, holy thing. You know, not wholly in a religious way, but in a in terms of our democracy and in terms of pride in America, and people forget that it's because we don't even think about private mail anymore because Gmail is not private. Yeah, and when but a lot of people think it is, but then yeah, they get advertising about their dog because they've been sending emails to their mom about their dog. Yeah, and um, so it's this concept so but but google's great google's amazing you know amazon's great all these companies are great companies but they have business models that are you know facebook i i think zuckerberg is terrific you know i, I think he's an incredible entrepreneur and i think facebook is just an amazing machine but you know it's based on the fact that they're gonna they're gonna data mine everything about you and that's why it's free it's not free you just don't pay because they data mine everything about you and then they sell access to you Right. That, that's what they that's their business model. And, you know, it's funny, the, the uh, congressional all this sort of noise about Facebook in the last two years, it, it's really not fair to Mark Zuckerberg because he's been very open about that for the entire history of the company. It's just it's it's a sophisticated business model. Most people still don't. Most normal people who use Facebook don't really understand it. They can't really explain why it's free. And they sort of know that they're being data mined all the time, that they're, they don't really have privacy, but they don't, you know, they're kind of okay with it. But, but when they really think about it, and when they also realize that, oh, when I upload to Facebook, Facebook asserts, they don't assert ownership of the photo back to the camera or back to the phone, but they assert a worldwide non-exclusive right to use that photo in any way they can, including deleting it. Yeah. So they, they, once you upload to them, they own that. 
and they can use it in any way they want. They can data mine it, they can resell it, they can use it, and they can delete it whenever they want. So again, it's a great company that does amazing things. It's an amazing free connect the world social media thing. It's it's fabulous. But it's not the place to keep your family, your key family memories that you want to keep forever. It's just not the place to keep them. Yeah. Forever.com is the only, and it's interesting too, you know, I, I kid that I'm, I'm old enough to actually worry about this. Yeah. Right. I had this idea in my late forties. Um, I started the company, I guess when I was 49 and people in their twenties, they think they're going to live forever. They don't, they don't realize, they, they just don't even think about these long-term issues and so that's what I tell my investors and stuff. I'm young enough to be dangerous. I'm going to be at this for a long time. I'm also old, but I'm old enough to commit to it long term. Yeah. You know, a lot of your listeners on this podcast are people younger in their career trying to figure out where they're going to go. One nice thing about being my age is that I've, I've been through so many different phases in my career and I've experienced so many things. I'm gonna, and, I've, and I've eliminated some possibilities. You know, it's no secret. I used to be interested in politics. I, I thought maybe I would go into politics. Well, my wife and I have eliminated that as a possibility. We've decided not to do that. Yeah. Having decided not to do something, I'm never going to work for anybody else again. I don't need to. That's I'm not going to go to work for some large company, you know, in, in, in some role. So I've, because I've eliminated a lot of things, I can commit to something long term. And yeah. so one of the things that's unique about what I've done that nobody, no manager at Google could ever do, no manager at Facebook could ever do, frankly, below Zuckerberg is I've committed to my clients. I will do this for like the next 20 years at least. I don't want to retire. I, I want to, I want to be active for a long, long time. I'm going to, I'm going to lead this company as CEO for at least the next 20 years. And my role, my career, my mission is to make sure that we build forever into an institution, a business institution that can fulfill this guarantee that we'll be able to be there for generations to come and not let down. I'm not, you know, there's no freaking way my team and I are going to let down our clients. Yeah. And we don't call them customers. We call them clients because we have a long-term relationship with the people who've decided to trust forever. That's beautiful. The energy that you've brought is no joke. We, we, we talked about Henry Thorne earlier in the conversation. Something that I deeply aspire to is to be able to bring an equivalent amount of vigor and enthusiasm to my work throughout the entirety of the career. That's a huge oh, yeah. thing that we try to explore here. And I want to talk later on in the interview sure. a little bit about, you know, upon having the means, the choice to then continue into starting the other company. But I want to take us back to the beginning. That's cool yeah. with you. I, I'm sure that there's other, you know, starting points that will, will feel more appropriate to you, but there's a lawn care business. There was a tour of duty in the Gulf War yeah. and the Harvard yeah. Business School, all as kind of the foundation setting of sorts. As I, as I looked at your career and your, your arc here, I want to start with that, that tour of duty in the Gulf War and some of the disciplines that you took away from that experience and then applied as you were building yourself up. Well, let me let me, let me go back a little bit further because it, you, you mentioned lawn care. So I yeah. grew up suburban kid from, you know, kind of middle-class suburban kid from the New York area. And I worked really hard as a kid. I, I don't know. I haven't been bored a day in my life since I was 12. I always had more stuff to do. Yeah. And uh, that was around the time when I, yeah, my summer business was cutting lawns. I did that for like four summers in between everything else I was doing. And I learned a lot about client service and, you know, good clients, bad clients and everything back then. So that was my first business. And, and quick aside, this is more just like for my own mental note. I have a good friend who had a lawn care business from like 15, 14 years old. And like whatever he does next, I'm in on. Like I don't even know what it's going to be. I've just seen him do that. I know no, that I'm in on whatever he does start. next. It's a great place to start. So um, I went to public high school. And, you know, my first, my first really big achievement in life was I got into Harvard. 
you know, it's, it's funny. My, my parents were highly educated, but my dad almost challenged me that, you know, gee, well, I'd, cause he really wanted me to go to another school, but he said, well, if you could get into Harvard, then I, you know, I'd let you go there. So, um, I got into Harvard. So I went and then, uh, but I went to Harvard and I, I, one thought, I, I almost thought about going to the, one of the military academies. I kind of had this desire to lead and get that experience of leading people in the military. I always had that kind of this feeling in my gut that I'd like to try that out. So I, um, but, but I went to Harvard, didn't do it. I went to Harvard and I was at Harvard for two years and it was in the spring of my sophomore year that I said, you know, I knew a couple people who were doing the um, officer training programs and I said, I'd really like to do that. So I went to, over to MIT because they had the all the military training for the Army and the Marine Corps, et cetera, and I decided to sign up for the Army. And I went to a boot camp the summer after my sophomore year, and I uh, did very well. I won a scholarship for my last two years in college, and I did all the, 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 the leadership training, et cetera. And then I got, when I graduated college, I um, got a commission, and I had um, uh, been assigned to be in reserve duty, and that meant I had to be on it, you know, in the reserves for eight years total with six months of active duty right after college to do more training as a, I was a combat engineer officer. So that was the background. I kind of had this gut. I always wanted to try the military out. Wasn't sure I wanted to make it a career. This is what's relevant to your audience too is, and this is a really important principle is the young people I know who get frozen and get kind of confused about where to go next are people who aren't throwing themselves and doing stuff. It's like, when you're 20 years old or 22 or even 56, like me, I'm 56 in two weeks, you don't know what to do. Yeah. It, it's, 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 it's unbounded, right? I mean, the, the people in our, career, in our society who have like a more programmed future are like doctors. You know, if you're sort of on the track to be a doctor, there's this whole prescribed path and everything. For the rest of us, in, or maybe even law, but even then it's pretty open-ended. For the rest of us, though, it's, a complete, it's completely open-ended. So how do you manage that problem? You say, well, what do I like? What do I think I like? You throw yourself into it. Yeah. Gee, maybe I want to be a military officer. Well, go to a boot camp. Throw yourself into it. You know, see if you can try it out. That was what the, the officer training program I went into was this great way to try it out. So anyway, I, I go do it. I get a commission. I did that for six months full-time after college. And then right before I left for the Army, I, I did a bunch of interviewing. I got a job in business for – it was Kraft General Foods, which actually became part of Heinz – Kraft Heinz, right? So it was that company. And I, uh, so I did six months in the army doing all kinds of leadership training and officer training. Then I worked in for Kraft General Foods in marketing, doing consumer marketing. In the middle of that, I met my wife. We got married and I, we went back to Harvard Business School. I got into Harvard Business School. And then in the middle of Harvard Business School, remember all this time I'm, you know, doing Kraft General Foods. I'm meeting my wife, blah, 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 blah. I'm still doing on the weekends. I'm doing all this reserve training. And, you know, I'm, well, at one point I flew out to, um, we, we, we deployed to the desert, Mojave Desert out in California for three weeks of desert warfare training and blah, blah, all this stuff. But then I went back to Harvard Business School, did that for a year, got a job with McKinsey as, in the summer as a consultant in the summer between years because, you know, basically I wasn't real happy with Kraft General Foods. Not, not aggressive enough for me. Too flat. I mean, I, I went You to wanted these, pace. I wanted pace and I wanted growth. Yeah. Right. You know, I was working on these food products like Cool Whip and Jello, which were great old brands. Some entrepreneurs way long ago had learned, had created that, created a lot of value, but now it was maintenance. Yep. And it was like, if we did a crummy job, we would grow 1% a year. If we did an incredible job, we would grow 3% a year. Who cares? 
right? I mean, who cares if 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 a few thousand more people eat Cool Whip? Yeah, you know, it's probably hurting their heart, right? I mean, who? It, I mean, but let's assume it's good for. Who it's not cares? good for the photos. That's it, the year that yeah, I had right. a lot of Cool Whip. Right, but it doesn't matter. You know, and, and just, it just doesn't. And I, that's I learned from that though. So I threw myself into consumer marketing. I liked business, but I didn't like flat growth. I didn't like a sleepy organization, and I didn't like things that didn't grow, and I didn't like things that didn't matter. I was like, okay, but in the meantime, on, on the weekends, I'm doing the military, and the military has its good, good and bad too, but it mattered to me. Defending the country, defending that country I talked about that's you know over 230 years old you know, since our constitution was first founded, you know, 240 since the Declaration of Independence, whatever, um, that mattered to me. You know, defending, helping, being my little, you know, as a member of the military, you're one little tiny piece, but that, that felt meaningful to me. So, um, so that was, that was one thing I learned early on too, throwing myself in. I learned, okay, then I realized I don't want to be a career military officer, but what did I learn? Getting back to your question, I learned a lot about leadership. Now I was, I'm gifted. I mean, I was born a leader. I've, I've always had the ability to lead and I've always had the ability to persuade. And so I've always been kind of a leader and a salesman. Yeah. And, um, and I just had that. I mean, when I was four years old, we'd, you know, pull up to a gas station and my, you know, th- this is the old days before Google Maps or anything. My dad would be like, uh, hey, Glenn, go, go ask the guy for a map or whatever it was. And, you know, he, I have little five-year-old Glenn. I'd, I'd go in and talk to the man and get whatever needed to be gotten, right? Well, my dad was pumping the gas because yeah. he knew I could talk to people and I could do that. But um, in the military, I learned so much. So, so the first key leadership lesson I learned in the military which really, and this was, I learned this the first time at the boot camp I went to when I was 20, was that great leaders are also great followers. They taught us that. They said, to be a great leader, you got to be a great follower. I remember hearing that. I was like, no way. I'm a leader. I'm not a follower. But then I learned, oh, okay. Every leader is under some authority or should be. Yeah. Right? And if you respect that authority and sh- show respect for it and show your subordinates that you respect it, then they'll trust you. If you act like you don't trust the leadership above you or whatever authority is above you, no one's going to trust you as a leader. And that was a that was a key concept. So as an example, let's say you're president of the United States. You don't have a boss. Well, you have the Constitution. You have the rule of law. You know, one thing I admire about George Washington, I mean, this is old stuff, but the founder of this country was, he had a profound respect for democracy, the will of the people, and the rule of law. And that's why he gave, he was the first person in U.S., in in world history in like 2,000 years to give up power. He was a victorious general of a, you know, led a war effort. They were asking him for a third term. Well, yeah, but even before, the victorious general of a war effort, and what did he do? He went back to, when, when the war was over, 1783, he goes back to, I think it was just January 1783, he goes back to Philadelphia, turns in his commission to Congress, the Congress that had refused to fund him, the Congress that had been so weak and incapable during the war, but he always stayed under their authority, the military always stayed under civilian authority during during the Revolutionary War before the Constitution, why? Because of Washington, and he turned back in his commission, and then he goes back home to Mount Vernon, and then... Several years later, what he's like the only guy anybody would trust. He, you know, kind of chairs the Constitutional Convention, then he's elected president, and then kind of begrudgingly he stays and does a second term. And then he didn't, and then he left. He said, I'm not doing a third term, and he, and he leaves office, right? And it's, but, but think about that. So he gave up power, and not only did he, so he gave up power twice. He gave up power after he won the war, and then he gave up power after he'd been president for eight years. And in the middle, people don't even know this, at the very end of the war, before he turned in his commission to 
um, to Congress in 1783, I think it was, in the fall of 1782, he, def- he stopped a coup. That the, the Continental Congress, the officers were so angry they hadn't been paid by Congress that they wanted to march on Philadelphia. He stopped it. So, I mean, so bottom line is, here was a guy who was, this is George Washington, the first president of the United States, this amazing guy, and he behaved like he was under authority. He had respect for the authority above him, whether it was Congress, whether it was democracy as a concept, or whether it was the rule, uh, the Constitution. Right. So it's just today. I mean, I could give many, many examples. Yeah. And I could give examples today of leaders in very senior positions who don't act like they're under authority and can. And I don't care. I'm not being left, right, or center, or whatever. But whether they're, it doesn't matter what their politics are. If they act like they're not under authority, if they act like they're not accountable then how can we trust them? So that's true politically. In business, it's the same way. If your people think that you're not responsible to shareholders, they think you don't act like you're responsible to a board of directors, they, you, know, they, you don't act like you're responsible to and accountable to your clients, to your customers, then how can your subordinates trust you? Yeah. You know, if you act in a, it, think about some of these men who behave in, in, in a, men and women, but a lot of men behaving, you know, in the Me Too era, behaving inappropriately in the workplace. Well, if you're, that's, that's a person who's acting like they're not under authority. They're, they're not accountable, right? And how can people trust them? They can't. And the notion that in any way, shape or form that could be compartmentalized, that happens over here, but like everything else is going smoothly and working yeah, you devoid know, Aaron, of that one element. I, I got to tell you one thing I've learned. I'm, I'm a student, you know, I, 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 I love history. I love economics. Clearly. I love science. I love, I, I, and I, I love religion. I mean, I, I really am a student of, of the world. And one thing I have learned in, it's true in business, it's true in the economy, it's true in general. Everything is tied together. This is on the mega scale. Now, no one's smart enough to understand it all. No one. A lot of people try. Just, you know, watch. I I love to watch. I love it in the mornings. I I run. I work out and run every morning. And I do it inside. And I watch CNBC. I watch, you know... Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and um, I forget his name, uh, the other guy. And I watch uh, Maria Bartiromo. I, I flip back and forth. And I, you know... And, and so there's a lot of people, there's pundits and stuff out there trying to figure out the economy and talking, blah, 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 blah. But no one is smart, no PhD, no one is smart enough to understand all the connections, but it's all connected. I mean, what happens in, you know, Iraq affects what happens everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's all connected. And that's on a global basis. By the way, it's all connected across time, too. Yeah. One real, this is, gets back to forever.com, one piece of real ignorance out there is most people live right within their own moment in time. And they don't understand where we came from and where we're going. They don't understand all the connections. It's it's connected across geography. It's connected across countries and people. And it's connected across time. Everything affects everything else. And within your own life, that's on the mega scale. Within your own life, yeah, the idea of compartmentalization is complete bunk. Everything is connected. If you're not trustworthy in one part of your life, let me tell you, you're not trustworthy in the other part of your life. Facts. Yeah. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So trying to make sense of markets, trying to figure out what's going on. One thing that, frankly, people my age cannot remember, but you can read about, you can experience at some point in time, 
was the dot-com bubble, the dot-com boom, which was uh, towards the later chapters, uh, or maybe not later chapters, but the middle chapters of your story with free markets. Before we get to that chapter, early. I, yeah. I want to get to the um, you know the founding story and the catalyst of that company. You recognized right. an opportunity to see- So what happened was, this gets into yeah. another core career principle. So I left, so I wanted to try out the army. I got this great training. I learned all this great leadership stuff. We haven't even begun to, you know, hey, here, here's a quick tip on leadership. Always eat last. Yep. You know, there, there's a principle in the army of if you're you're a lieutenant in charge of a platoon and everybody's hungry, it's been a long day, you make sure all your suit troops, you stand in the back of the line, everybody eats first. That's what a leader does. Yep. And so you put your people ahead of you. And, and you do that in many, many ways. And, and if you do that, people will love you and they'll follow you, even in combat. But so you'll, I learned many things in the military, but, that, but I didn't want to make it a career. So it was great. I tried something. I threw myself in, decided, okay, great. Learned a lot, but I'm not going to do that with my career. That's what people need to do. Then I did the same thing, Kraft General Foods. I worked in marketing. Wow. Love business. Like marketing. Don't like that kind of company. Don't like flat growth. Okay, I need to find something better. I'm in business school. I, I literally started asking, around, where, where do people make money here? It was like investment banking or consulting. And I was yeah. like, well, I don't really want to be a banker. I don't want to just do transactions. I want to learn to build a, and run a business. Let me do consulting because I'll see a lot of businesses. So I go do that. And um, this is a, and I had a great, great, great entrepreneurial finance professor at Harvard, at Harvard Business School. Called, his name is Bill Salmon. Uh, he's re- recently retired, but he's still alive and well and doing great. And Bill said a lot of key things, but Bill said, you're not going to, as an entrepreneur or a want, what do you call it? Wantrepreneur. A wantrepreneur. You're not going to find an idea sitting on your couch watching television. I would say you're not going to find a, an idea, you know, sitting on your phone, hanging out, playing video games either, right? You're going to find an idea being out there in the world. And so, you know, at, at McKinsey, I ended up doing a lot of work in sourcing, which is helping companies buy stuff better, you know, higher quality, lower cost. Faster turnarounds, lower inventories, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I found, my goodness, you could save a ton of money. And I could tell you stories, but I did a couple of different studies, big projects for different companies where we, we just made them money hand over fist by doing better sourcing, helping them find better suppliers, cheaper prices, et cetera. So, and I, and I, and I, after two and a half years at McKinsey, I was like, you know, this is not the, and I, at the point, at that point I was married, my wife, we had one baby, we had another one on the way. And I was like, this is not the lifestyle for me. So I decided to look around and I, and I wanted to start a business right then and there, but I just, I didn't have it. It didn't all come together for me. And I got a great offer from General Electric, which at the time was a great company. I'm not sure if it is anymore, but it was a great company then. And I actually worked on Jack Welch's staff. Wow. And so it was this internal consulting group worked directly for Jack. My, so my boss reported directly to Jack and we did work for Jack and we did work you know, around the company, uh, different internal consulting projects, and there was nobody working on sourcing and supply management. And that's another key principle, right? Go where they go where they ain't. Yep. And I just I knew from my experience with McKinsey, you could you could generate boatloads of money for a company by improving sourcing. And no one at GE wanted to fo- none of, none of the people, the forty people in my internal consulting group wanted to focus on it. So I was like, I'm going to do that. So I start working on this, and it was 1994. And it was just when um, there was no there was no browsers, there was there was no commercial internet. The internet was out there as a concept. And actually, the first time I ever think I really started to understand the internet was when I saw the old movie War Games. Except you know that movie? I War don't. Games? There's a great. You should go look this movie up. There's a movie called War Games, and it was it's a movie about a. It's a long story, but it, it basically it's this a computer runs amok and there's almost a nuclear war because. 
the um, the computer is simulating, thinks it's doing a simulation, a war game, and it and it turns out that people don't know that, and so the other side's almost launching nuclear weapons. Got it. And um, it's a great fun movie. I think I saw it in nineteen probably eighty two. So I think I became aware of the internet about nineteen eighty two, eighty three. That's pretty early. Oh yeah, well I'm aware, but um. And then by 1994, you know, I'm aware of the internet, but there's no, like, there's no commercial internet. There's no browsers. But I'm at GE, and I'm like, okay, we need to find a way to create better competition between these suppliers. And there was a bunch of different ways they were doing that. But one guy I talked to had this idea. He was like, why don't we do bidding across the internet? And I said, really? He said, yeah. And we could create, you know, we could use client server uh, software technology, and we could run, and, and GE had a van, so they had a value-added network to do electronic transactions, so to move money across the, the, their private network. And he's like, I think we could create software that, that we could create a server, and we could create some client software on PCs where we could run bids across the network. I said, great, let's try it. So we did it, and then within a few weeks of experimentation, because I'm thinking, when I heard this, I'm thinking, okay, you know, bid gets transmitted from this supplier, bid gets transmitted from that supplier. We see the bids, compare them. But no, what we realized real quick was that, oh, we could create interactive bidding in real time. And that was in June of 1994. It was like, wow, we can create. So so a supplier sitting in uh, North Carolina could be bidding against a supplier in India or a supplier in China. Wow. And, you know, oh, it's a million-dollar contract. The supplier in North Carolina could bid a million dollars, and the supplier in China could see that bid and respond to it in near real time. I was like, oh, that changed. So we could have global downward price electronic auctions. It's like, that's going to change the world. Yeah. I mean, that's going to change the world. That kind of real-time interactive across the globe, that's going to change the world. And so that was in June 19, 1994. So I started, so I went to my boss and I said, listen, this, I got this idea for this GE electronic marketplace. Let's, let, let me go do that. So I had another project I was still working on, but he said, yeah, go ahead and spend time on that. So basically from June of 94 through February of 95, I worked on what I call the GE electronic marketplace. And so it became a thing and I became the manager of it. And then, and it got off the ground and we had some early success. We created some early software and had some early success, but we had some problems too. And also I realized, so we, we, I learned that it wasn't just about the technology. In this case, garbage in, garbage out. If, if people didn't know what they were bidding on, the results were meaningless. So it was really important to specify exactly what was being, what is the contract? What, what, you know, what's, what are the quality requirements? What are the delivery requirements? What are the material requirements? It was really important to specify all that. What are the logistics? What are the payment requirements? Everything. And then, so everybody had apples to apples comparison and to make sure that all the suppliers knew what those were and also make sure all the suppliers were, were capable head to head. And, and so there was a lot of economic work and really engineering and manufacturing work that went with the, the internet technology. And I learned that. I also learned that trying to do something new within a big corporation was really hard. Yeah. And why should, and it was kind of like, gee, I could put two or three or four years of my life into this. And they pat me on the head and say, great job, Glenn, here, we're going to give you a promotion, go run appliances. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to go run appliances. I want to be in the internet. So I left. So my dad, it was funny, my dad was alive at the time. My dad uh, lived for many years after that, but he... You know, here I was like 30, I was, I was 30 years old, had a wife, had two, I had a, a six-month-old baby and a, um, and like a, whatever, 30-month-old, so a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a six-month-old, and a fabulous wife, and we're living in Connecticut, I'm working for GE, I'm making a ton of money for my age, and, um, and I left. Yeah. And my dad thought I was just crazy. What are you doing? Well, the good news was when I put the I put together a private placement, and you know I put I, 
I had saved a hundred thousand bucks. That's another key principle. If you're a entrepreneur, and and this is this guy Bill Salmon at Harvard told me this a long time ago. Another one of his key one of his key lessons was you're not going to find a good idea sitting on a couch watching TV. Second key idea: if you really want to be an entrepreneur, you got to live like it. You got to yeah. save money and keep your expenses down. So we were doing that, fortunately, and uh, and the bottom line was I went and um, we took the hundred thousand dollars we had saved. And we put it all into forever. Excuse me. This was free markets. All into free markets. Freemarkets.com, my first internet company. And then I, I, I recruited a partner, a guy named Sam Kinney, who I'd met at, at, at uh, McKinsey. He put a chunk of money in, like, you know, it was a little bit less, maybe 75000 And then my dad put a hundred, despite the fact that my dad was so, thought I was crazy. And this is where I love him for this, was that he bet on me too. He put in two different I think he put a hundred he put a hundred thousand dollars in as well, which was a lot of money to him. Yeah. And and then Sam's dad put a fifty or a hundred thousand dollars in. So that's how we got free markets. That was your seed capitalized was that was our own money. It was it was Sam's money, my the two co founders and our dads put in the first, you know, probably three hundred thousand dollars combined. And then we did a private play it was nineteen ninety five. It's it's shocking when you see I think the total amount of venture capital invested in the US economy in nineteen ninety five was five or six billion compared to by 1999 about 100 billion and today it's got to be 140 150 billion yeah and of course it's all very very late stage it's funny early stage particularly in Pittsburgh is sort of back to the future it's like back to 1995 because there's so much money flowing into late stage it's very difficult to do early stage but it was very difficult to get early stage funding in 1995 even with a compelling internet idea and so we did a private placement and raised our first you know million dollars or 2 million dollars that way and uh, we got we got going, and we got and it was uh, you know we just got going really really hard, really fast. Worked really hard in 1995, and got our first had our first. We I started you know I left GE in February. We started free markets in March of '95. Got it going. We got some software built. We had our first downward price real time auction for a client. It was either it was I believe it was late November of '95. So about you know whatever nine or nine months later or so. And um, we ended up, up having $16,000 of revenue that year in 1995. And then in 96, we had, here's why free markets was so valuable. 96, we had $408,000 of revenue. Then 97, we had $1.8 million of revenue. Then 98, we had seven, almost $8 million of revenue. 99, we had $23 million of revenue went public. And we went public on December 9th, 1999, right before the end of the century, right in the heart of the internet bubble. When we filed for the, we did a Series C financing in September at a seven hundred million dollar, seven hundred fifty million dollar valuation. Yeah, raised about forty five million dollars in that. Three months later, we went public, raised two hundred million dollars, and we when we when we filed the S one, which is when you start the IPO process, we filed at about an eight hundred million dollar valuation. Over the two weeks of the roadshow, the demand was unbelievable. We went from a fourteen dollar price in the S1. We went public at 48. Could wow. have gone public higher, but the, the, I had a whole discussion with Mary Meeker telling us to go lower, but um, uh, we had Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs co-book running. Went public at 48, which was a $2.5 billion valuation. We started, we went public the morning of the 9th of December. The, the final trade that day was at 270. So it was the, I think to this day, the fourth largest first day pop in an IPO, and we closed the day at about an eight billion dollar valuation. It got as high as ten. It got as high as thirteen. We went; the stock went as high as uh, three hundred sixty bucks a share, thirteen billion dollar valuation. 
And that all happened between, you know, that all happened in December. Basically, the last, the highest valuation day was the last day of the century. So December 31st, 1999, we had a $13 billion valuation. So I'm supposed to ask about that. One of the previous employees, the legendary holiday party of 1999 at Free Market. <laughs> so it was apparently a heck of a show. It was, it was um, much better than anything you ever saw on TV. Yeah? Yeah. No, no Except more Except I that? had the flu. <laughs> so that experience to me what cannot ever be translated into someone in their career right now is being in a market of euphoria and the differing degrees of maybe mary meeker telling you to lower or cap that valuation um but the the recognition that there is something you know one of the books i read when i was um a student at the University of Pittsburgh talked about like the South Seas bubble and tulip mania yeah. and these other periods in time where this has occurred. I wish I had read that book in, in college or business school. I didn't. Yeah. So I knew so, nothing about bubbles. So was there a recognition or was no. like, okay. No, it was, um, to, so you've seen the Grinch who stole Christmas. Yes. You've seen the in cartoon version. Yes. And I'm sure everybody has. Think about the Grinch's mountain. Okay, so, you know, the Grinch lives on this huge mountain, you know, it's, but this way, 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 way up there, this, it's like this spire way, way, way up in the sky. You know, you look down, you're looking down, it looks like ten, the way the cartoon is like tens of thousands of feet down on Whoville, and the Grinch lives up on this mountain, and somewhere, even though it's at this tippy, tippy top, there's a big cave up there, and he lives up there, right? That's the Grinch. Yeah. And that is not a, um, that is not a real mountain. That's not possible. That's like a Dr. Seuss mountain. Right. Right. And it's not a, you know, the Swiss Alps, the, uh, the Rockies, the, the Himalayas, the, the, the Grinch's mountain is not physically possible. Okay. That was the internet bubble. When you, th- when you look at the chart of the internet bubble in 1999, you know, starting in fall of 1998, when eBay went public, September 98 is where it really started, but it went all the way and it peaked in March of 2000, but it started to get real, real, real bumpy. We were like at the summit in January, February of 2000, right after our, you know, a month after our IPO. And then it crashed in, in March into April of 2000. But that peak, when you look at the chart, it's a Dr. Seuss peak. It's not a Himalayas. It's not the, the Alps. It's not the Rockies. It's a, it's a physically impossible peak. Now, I say that, I try to draw that picture. And literally, if you go and you look at the data... That's the shape of the, it's a Dr. Seuss peak. And yet here we are climbing, you know, the first side of that. And we didn't all know. Yeah. We didn't know it was going to crash. I mean, it's it's unbelievable we didn't, but no one knew it was going to crash. That's the truth. No matter what anybody tells you now, no one knew it was going to crash. Hindsight's all that, yeah. You know, we thought, oh, we're we're changing the world. The internet's going to change everything. It's, you know, we're getting valued because of the amount of change there's going to be. And when you look back and it's like, look at Google. Look at Amazon. Look at Facebook. Look at Netflix. I mean, look at where Microsoft has gone. I mean, there's, yeah, the internet has changed everything. It's just that it took, you know, it's taken 20 years, and it, and nobody knew what the, you know, to use kind of Wall Street term, no one, no one knew what names were going to be the ones that stuck, you know. But um, yeah. So it it, it, it this doctor piece we wrote up the f- one side of it, and then we fell off the other side, all the way back down to Whoville. And I was, I, I, you know, I was the, the kind of loyal, I, I was never a Boy Scout, but I like the phrase, you know, I'm kind of the, the loyal and true Boy Scout kind of person. And, you know, I didn't sell any, I, I, I was locked up. I didn't sell a single share during the bubble. Yeah. Not, you know, and, and so at one point, one point I was worth 1.5 billion on paper. 
and then um, you know, then of course it. And and I'm the you know, I think there were a lot of people in the internet bubble, in the first internet bubble, like me, who you know didn't get anything out during it. There were some people who got really, really, really lucky. Yeah. And um and and happened to maybe and built maybe not nothing, but got to sell a lot of nothing at the peak. There were a few people like that. I won't mention any names, but there were a few people like that, but very few. So so. I might not meet another person in a long time who I can ask the question this way of psychologically what that does to you. Like that, that is a, the definition of a roller coaster, right? Oh, it's, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not a roller coaster. A roller coaster is physically possible. This was like a Dr. Seuss mount. This is not physically possible. So so clearly it's, it's apparent from so far in this interview that family is very important. You have your relationship with your wife and your kids and and dad and all this stuff. But in terms of the conversations that happen as that's going on and trying to make sense of it. One of the challenging things was from, so there's, you know, one of the challenging things is as a public company CEO, you're not allowed to talk to anybody. And, you know, had I had the experience I have now, I would have done a better job of having kind of personal advisors who were sort of within the veil of silence who I could talk to. But this all happened, Aaron, this happened so fast. It was unbelievable. I mean, I can't even tell you. It just happened so fast. And so the numbers are so amazing, right? So we finished the year 1999 with 23 million of revenue and a $13 billion market cap, right? Which is ridiculous, yeah. but that's what it was. Then in the year 2000, we grew the company over 300%. So in the year 2000, we did 99 million of revenue. It was actually, if you adjust for gap, it was actually 90 million, But because there, there, we, we had a bad ruling on one contract. But, but our real revenue went from 23 to 99. And, or if you want to say gap, 23 to, to 90, whichever. But, you know, 300% plus growth. That's what was going on in our business. We went from like 286 employees to like 1,100 employees. So the business is booming and the stock price is cratering. That's right. what happened to us in 2000. And that was, so we, and we, and, you know, we started the year with a $360 per share, you know, price. And we ended the year with like $20 a share. And, um, and it was, it was very, it, I mean, there were some people who had a real tough, psychological time with that yeah for me it's it's interesting i've written i've actually got one book done it's um and it's somewhat autobiographical but it's really about forever i've got another book in my head talking about this but the day of the ipo on december 9th that the night before after two weeks of roadshow hadn't had a flu shot shaking hands with hundreds and hundreds probably thousands of people all across the country and i picked up the flu and it hit me really hard the morning of the IPO. So I actually wasn't even in the photo at the CNBC market site. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't, I was at the hospital, I was back in the hotel, you know, getting Getting sick to my stomach. I was able to drag myself, you know, out of the hotel by about two in the afternoon to meet my wife and kids and everybody else in the whole IPO party. And then we flew back on a G5 to Pittsburgh for the party you're talking about. And I was able to kind of pull myself through. But that, the fact that I was sick that morning gave me a level of perspective. I mean, I had perspective anyway, maybe, but it, it, it was it was a really interesting thing that happened because all of a sudden, the morning of the IPO, I felt so bad. You know, it was one of, you know, you know when you're really, really sick with the yeah. flu and you're getting sick to your stomach and you're kind of, you know, you're kind of worshiping the porcelain god. Yeah. You're not thinking about money. You're, you're thinking about how yeah. bad you feel, right? It puts in perspective. You trade it all to feel 
That's right. Better. So I, I th- that was a godsend for me that I had that little bit of perspective at that moment because it was it was a you know it was a it was an incredibly it was just yeah how many how many people do you talk to who have been billionaires right and you know I made I like to it's like when you talk to me you're talking to somebody who made a billion dollars and lost a billion dollars yeah and um and then you you know and then do you have the courage and the will to fight on and you know, and be successful going forward. That's that's what it comes down to. And, and it also seems like to a degree, if you're expanding from 23 to 99 million in revenue, so on and so forth, that you're also in the eye of the storm just having to continue to execute. Like just to manage oh, yeah. that growth, exactly. regardless of share price, just exactly. adding headcount and closing exactly. deals and all of that. And the inevitable things that break as you grow at that yeah. fast of a rate. Try, trying to manage 300% growth and trying to manage the all the people stuff going on with that. And then some of the upsets, some of the people who are large investors are experiencing because the stock has crashed. Even though we're doing so well, the stock is going down. To explain that. Yeah. And trying to manage all that. And then on top of that, and this is where in retrospect you do need to recognize that one of the keys to, and, and Jim Collins and Good to Great writes about this, one of the keys to success of a company is when the leadership, and I mentioned Washington, when the leadership completely aligns itself with not with their, their career and their money, but with the success of the organization, right? That's really key. And I had, believe me, I was like living, breathing, drinking free markets. But you have to also, as an entrepreneur, recognize that your financial interest does vary, especially once you're public. But your financial interest is a little bit different from that of your company and your shareholders. For instance, it is in your interest to diversify yeah. and put some money on the side. And in fact, you're crazy not to. Yeah. But you know, it's not like your lawyers or accountants and people inside the company are going to tell you that. You need good advisors because they're legally obligated not to tell you that. Yeah. In a way, right? You need some lawyers and accountants outside who are just advising you about your interests too. So that, you know, I learned all that. And I learned a little bit too late, but that's okay. We did, you know, I've, I've learned a lot that's benefited me a lot since. And of course, with free markets, what happened was, is that we, we um, you know, we had this incredible IPO and incredible market cap for three months. And then, and really for that whole year, because we crashed from the $13 billion level down to $2.5 billion. And that was still, on a company with only you know 99 or $100 million of revenue, a ridiculous 25 multiple. times revenue multiple, right? It was still huge. And then it was at the end of the year, because it was the second internet crash in November 2000, when we went from like that $2.5 billion level down to like the $500 million level. And that was much more rational. And then we, which would be more, much more consistent with today's valuations. And then we, um, we, we kept growing the company. We grew, you know, we grew the company to close to 200 million. And then we, then our growth rate slowed down dramatically. And we eventually merged, you know, sold the company to merged into Ariba in 2004. We did that. The valuation of the, our company at that point was 500 million. And then Ariba, the, the combined companies did very well. In fact, you know, here in Pittsburgh, Ariba, um, well, Ariba sold in in 2012 to SAP for about two and a half billion. So. The, the merger of the two companies worked very, very well. And then um, and SAP, people don't realize it, but you know SAP has built this big office building right next to the uh, baseball, right next to Heinz, or, uh, PNC Park on the North yeah. Shore. And it's filled. There's there's a whole bunch of people who used to work for free markets who are still working for SAP. Yeah. A couple of those characters also dispersed and have started companies. And uh, we've had a few of them on, on past episodes of the uh, the podcast. But what you did as a next step after that acquisition was start venture investing. And you had a couple of different successes, Kiva Systems, Shipwire, CloudMeter, Hotpads. 
And I'm curious if, you know, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time here. We've been, yeah, yeah. been rolling pretty fast, but in terms of as another kind of period of your career to people my age, uh, particularly in that, like not sure which way to go, the same way people latch onto investment banking or consulting as right. like a pathway to go down, venture investing, venture capital has that same type of aura to the kind of entrepreneur stage character. So sure. having, you know, Acquired some wealth still from the acquisition and everything oh, yeah, that yeah. happened. And, and it, it, part of you know, we ended up selling the company for five hundred million dollars. So yeah. I ended up doing very, very well. Yes. Um, but not, you know, it was interesting because I had this look at another a whole different level and um and that didn't last, but it it also helped keep things in perspective for me. And you're yeah. right, you know, how did I you asked before how did I survive all that psychologically? It was hard, but I mean, you know, it gets back to I had been to war, you know, and I you know, I got shot at. You know, and it's, um, it's, you know, it, you, you, you learn what is really important. The most important things are your family, you know, your, your spouse, your children, your parents, you know, if you have faith in God, God, you know, it's, the, these are the things that, that are important to you, you know, loyalty to your friends and family. And I think the people who are very, very, very wealthy, but don't have that, I wouldn't trade. I mean, you, yeah. you need to have what's really valuable in your life. It's those people and your faith and beliefs that's what really gives life meaning so fortunately i was aware of that and that really saw me through that whole experience and then you know we kept and i'm i'm like a bulldog i mean i get my teeth into something i just i'm determined so we kept working away you know my my co-founder sam kinney left shortly after the ipo but dave becker who had joined us a couple years after we started the company he was a friend of mine from harvard business school he was our coo for a number of years he was fabulous and a guy named dave mccormick who's had an amazingly successful career since free markets he joined us two days before the ipo and was um, a really key leader for four years you know leading up to our sale to ariba and then he was he actually succeeded me as ceo six months before we sold to ariba and then um, he stayed for i left right away he stayed for a year after uh, the sale to ariba so we had some you know dave, dave mccormick and dave Becker are the first two that come to mind, but we had an, a whole bunch of other people who were really, really critical in um, in getting us there. And, and I will say too, you know, here in town, um, Marley Myers at Morgan Lewis was our attorney throughout, and she was a terrific advisor to the company. And so there were a lot of great people, and we were able to just like you know stick to it, stick to our guns, and we built the thing. You know, when we went public, we were only twenty three million in revenue. Three years later, we were almost two hundred million. And then, then strategically, and, and so we'd really grown into, in, it, we never had a billion dollar valuation again, but we had really grown into that, you know, $500 million valuation. Yeah. It wasn't vaporware. Oh, heck no. No, we were, and we had, at our peak year, we had $50 million in positive cash flow. We were, you know, free markets was a real company. Yeah. And that's why there's, you know, that's why SAP has this big office in Pittsburgh and there's still hundreds of people who work there because what we built was real. And we, you know, we all did very well. You know, we didn't, we didn't do bubble well, but we did very, very well. And then then it's funny, and during that last year or two at Free Markets, I started getting, you know, I, I got, I would get deal flow. People would come to me with ideas and with yep. deals. And one of them was actually Niche.com, Luke Skirman's company, yep. which is doing extremely well. And of course, I was the first, I was the lead investor in Niche going way back to when it was College Prowler. You know, yeah, the old he was name. fresh out of his dorm. Yeah, he was when I met him. And um, yeah, um, and then I've been, I've been chairman of the board ever since. So that's been, you know, Niche has been, you know, kind of one of my sidelight entrepreneurial advising missions here. And then, but because of that, and I, I did some other kind of super angel investing after I got out of free markets. And then that led to Dave Becker and I, I left free markets, Dave left free markets, 
you know, after the sale. And we got together again and put together a venture fund, $75 million venture fund. And we started making, we raised that money, you know, from institutions and people and all kinds of people we knew. And we, you know, we were able to put together a pretty big first time fund doing early stage investing. And we spent from 06 to 12, that six year period doing early stage tech investing. And we made 16 investments and we've had five different successful liquidity events from that. The fund is almost completely, it's had it's been a success, almost completely wrapped up. Yeah. And, um, and I learned a lot from that, but, and, and, you know, there's a lot of repeat messages here. You know, it, the team is so critical. If, if you have an entrepreneur who's really talented, smart, dedicated, but honest and trying to really care about their constituents, you know, they're, they're really trying to do a great job for clients, but really respects his, his or her shareholders. That's key. And every great experience we've had where we made money was with a great founder and CEO. Some of the times where we weren't successful in our venture investing, and of course, every venture fund has those, those failures, were cases where we thought the person or the people were great and they turned out not to be so great. And, and like one of the big things I focus on, do these people really respect their investors and do they respect the capital? And are they are they intending to actually make people money, yeah. or is it just a game? Yeah, you know. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to invest in anybody who's not taking it seriously. Right. So, and unfortunately, there are people who talk a good game and then they're not taking it that seriously, or or it's just, and it's just really hard. You know, it can be very, very hard to get a business off the ground. So, and so basically, after deploying that route, like sometimes, you know, if if you had the successful uh, different acquisitions and some of those investments, that's part of the basis by which someone then builds a story and you know goes back to the LPs and maybe. Raises fund, right. fund two, fund three, fund four. You kind of decided that that just wasn't the avenue wasn't that you me. felt fulfillment. Yeah, I, I, I did not. Um, the problem venture capital is a lot like high school. <laughs> okay, and, I don't think I've heard that one before. Yeah, and all, I'll give you a lot of original. The Dr. Seuss peak. <laughs> that's me too. You know? Yeah. But venture capital is a lot like high school, and all the really cool kids live in California. And the somewhat cool kids, the pretty, but they've gotten a lot cooler. But the pretty darn cool kids live in New York. Yeah. And the wannabe cool kids who aren't really that cool live in Boston. That's a <laughs> that's a problem. Boston's a clear number three. But um, and, and Pittsburgh's just not that cool. Yeah. You know, in the venture capital world, you're in Pittsburgh and you just kind of have a little bit of a mark on you that you're just not. You know, oh well, you're only if you were any good, you'd be in California or you'd be in New York at least. But you're in why are you in Pittsburgh? And that's true. It, it, it so it, it's a very catty high schooly world yeah. in, in, within w- among venture capitalists and people who are sort of close to that. And so, um, and it's funny because clients and customers don't care where you are. You know, nobody, it, I think two thirds of high school students are signed up with niche.com every year. It's amazing the penetration they have of high school students, right? No one knows where niche.com is located. Right. And it's located here in Pittsburgh, and it's you know Luke Skerman is fabulous, and um, his team is terrific, and and you can so you can be and free markets proves it, niche.com proves it, forever proves it, other companies, giftcards.com proves it, you know you can be any you can be located here. Nobody cares where that company is, but somehow in the venture capital world, having the right return address for the venture firm itself is yeah. important. And so that was one thing I was frustrated because I because at this point you know we're you know I've got five kids that four of them are grown and out of that you know two are in college two are in their twenties but the bottom line is we're we're, we're settled here I'm not I'm not from here I'm from New York but I'm, I'm we're settled here in Pittsburgh we're staying here and uh, this is where we have roots so this is where we're staying and so that was one thing I was like okay I can't really build a world class venture firm here I can't do it it's it, it's because all the cool kids are in California and New York that was one thing but more than even more important than that I'm an operator. I'm a leader. Yeah. And I just found that 
um, gosh, being a being a venture capital investor, I was just too much in the back seat. It just wasn't fulfilling for me. And uh, and then I had this, and and it's a very long term thing. I mean, here with Meekum Becker, here we've had a successful fund. We started in '06. Yeah. We the and we probably started working on it late in '05. The investment investment period was five and a half years from mid '06 to the end of '12. And then you know we've been in the harvest period here, and now it's 2020, and we're we're just successfully completing the we're going to legally complete the fund and have our final communications to LPs and stuff here in 2020. We just sent big check. We had a big liquidity event. A company called Schoology.com sold here in December or it sold in November. We distributed all the money in December to our LPs, and you know here it is. It's 2020. I mean, I started that in 20. 2005. Wow. And that's another thing too is that's another frustration I have with the venture capital industry is that all the people you deal with you go to raise money all the people you deal with are not the people like me who raise the money who are accountable to the shareholders who are really following through. It's all these people who are oh I was at this firm for three years and I was that firm for two years and I was at that firm for five years. They, they don't really have skin in the game. And um and so they and they don't act like it as investors either, but that's another story. The bottom line for me though is that we just decided that um or I decided in twelve at the end of the investment period that I just didn't enjoy investing in other people that much. And I really enjoyed running my own show. And I had this great idea. You know, then, then it gets into we started the interview with Forever.com. And I was like, you know, at this at this point, I you know, at that point I've got, you know, five kids wife, been married 25 years or whatever it was. And I think maybe we had two in college at the time or one graduating, but we had, you know, we we're at a very active stage with our family. And it's like, where am I going to keep all these memories? Where am I going to yeah. keep all this stuff? And that's why I said, well, we, there's, there's no permanent place on the internet. There's no place where I can have a private permanent cloud that I can trust. And, and there was a bigger thought too, which is that, you know, we, we live in this society now where my goodness, I mean, the political fighting is so intense. Nobody trusts anybody. Nobody trusts the government anymore. I mean, frankly, the IRS has been used against people. I'll never, I mean, I'm a war veteran, right? Like I said, I was shot at, but I don't quite have the same attitude towards our government that I used to have. I mean, I'm very loyal. I'll never, I'm a very loyal person, but I have a level of skepticism that I just didn't used to have because I've seen people in Washington, D.C. Again, I'm not being political, but I've seen people in Washington, D.C. use the government apparatus against citizens in a way I just don't approve of. So I will never, I mean, I used to, I used to send my, my I used to write, you know, I, I paid a tremendous amount in taxes. Sure. Tremendous. And I used to pay my taxes with the same sort of patriotic feeling that I served in the military. Like, this is my duty to the country. And now I sort of pay my taxes because I have to. And, you know, yeah, I, I, there's a good, right, you know, I, but, but I, it's like I have to. And, um, and I just, there, there have been things that have happened in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, whatever, that I can't really ever forgive. I mean, the fact that politicians at high levels use the IRS against taxpayers, against certain kinds of taxpayers for their politics, is, is so outside the bounds of what America is about that I'll never think of our federal government or the IRS the same way again. I'm going to latch on to something, which is the notion that you go to a college and they have a startup competition and everything is about hooking up or finding the party or getting the booze at an appropriate price because that's the world that the college student is in and they're making something for themselves. And then you look at some of these Silicon Valley startups and it's the, you know, recently into adulthood, hey, we'll help you walk your dog, get your laundry, buy your groceries, so on and so forth. And you reaching this point in your life, seeing the significance and the importance of family, make something for which once again, you are the target demo to some degree. Mothers, fathers, parents, 
looking to keep track of yep. those memories. And you were talking about very early in this interview about how or what it's like to go about uncovering an opportunity or a market or a potential startup idea. And I think that that's another important idea, yes. which is not trying to go way out into Timbuktu to go fi fix the problem over there that you probably don't really understand, yes. but to recognize the problem right at home yes. and go about addressing it. I completely agree. And I mentioned one of my mentors, and I, I have been blessed with many you know, I had a had a great father. He wasn't perfect. He had his ups and downs, but he he, he I learned I learned a lot from him. And a great mother. I just saw her this weekend, so I'm very very blessed by that. And I have a great wife, and I have great kids. You know, I got a what time is it now? I got a call scheduled with my daughter. Three forty five. Okay, I'm good. But um, and I have great kids, so I have great people in my life. But I've also had great mentors, and um, I mentioned this guy Bill Solomon, who I need to give a call to. But, uh, and he was one of my professors at Harvard Business School I'm still in touch with. And he was actually an investor in Meekham Becker Venture Capital. That's one reason I had to give a call. Yeah. But I need to make sure he gets his check. But, um, but he always said that. It's going back to this concept of you're not going to find that entrepreneurial idea looking at, from, from Pittsburgh looking at Timbuktu or sitting on your couch looking at the TV. You're going to find that through your own experience being out there in the world. And that's, you know, with tech, not like with, with free markets, the whole, you know, yeah, I was aware of the internet, but. I discovered the need that industrial companies had for sourcing and also the need uh, of the capabilities of the internet through my work experience, myself directly. So I knew about those two things and then I was able to put them together. I'm not a, um, I'm not a, I mean, I'm very scientific. I'm very curious about science. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an inventor. What I am though is I'm a conceptual, I, I understand, I mentioned about how things are all connected together. Everything's connected. Everything is literally, everything influences everything else. The system is incredibly, the, the, it's incredibly complex. You could never possibly model the economy and how everything interacts, but everything's connected. And sometimes great entrepreneurs, or at least capable ones like me, are people who see connections across things and can put things together. So I put industrial sourcing and the internet together. That, and that was a big insight in 1994, 95, right? With, with forever, yeah. I was old enough, you know, I'm very internet aware and stuff, but I was old enough to see that, wow, I need some, we, people need permanence. Yeah. In, so yeah, it was, it was an idea that was at home for me, just like you're saying. But here's the other thing. So we start the thing and we're thinking, oh yeah, we're going to sell to men, we're going to sell to women. We hired a guy who's a fabulous guy, he's a friend of mine. I'm actually, we were supposed to have dinner a couple of weeks ago and he got sick, but a guy was older than me. But um, we hired this guy to just focus on selling to veterans because we thought, oh, veterans would be a great market for this. Right. And, um, and you, you go figure that out. Well, it turned out it's all about women. So, so, so you're right. You got to start something in an area where you know something about, but then you have to listen to your clients. You have to listen and you have to make changes. So I found with both free markets and with, with forever and with a lot of the other companies I've been involved in niches, niche.com is another great example where you start doing one thing, you go through the door and my co-founder at Free market. Sam Kinney used to have this analogy of, you know, you're there, you're, you're, you're a wantrepreneur. I love that phrase. I'm going to use that. It's yeah. your phrase, but I'm, I never heard it before today. But you see that door there of going through that door and starting a venture. But you can't see through the door. You got to go through it. To, you, 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 you literally cannot see what's on the other side till you actually walk through it. And once you walk through it, you really can't go back. You know, I mean, from a career standpoint, if you have a good education and stuff, you, you could, but you know, from where you are today, you're not going to be able to go back to where you are today. You're yep. going to walk through that door and you're going to, you're going to move forward in your life. And, but once you walk through that door and you're in business, 
new opportunities open up if you're aware, if you're paying attention, if you're listening to clients and customers. And so in our case with, with free markets, the quick example is we really thought we could get suppliers to pay for the service. And we worked like heck for like two and a half years trying to have suppliers pay us a sales commission for winning businesses through free, for winning business through free, freemarkets.com. And um, it didn't work. I mean, we, we, we made some millions of revenue, but it was so hard. We flipped, then we listened to our, and we had, we had one big client. This is a great story. We had P&G, Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio, was a pilot client. And they did some, we did some work for them. We did some, we ran some downward price auctions for them. We saved them a lot of money on two or three different projects. And they said, and we, and we, they paid us some money for it. And they said, okay, free markets. We like you guys. Great. We want to do a bigger contract. But there's only one problem. This whole supplier sales commission thing, that's not going to work for us. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. Um, you, we'll pay you some money, but and let's talk about how much money we'll pay you. But we're not going to do that. We said, oh no, you know, Procter Gamble, we're we're free markets, and we <laughs> we um you know we, we the way we do business is we get paid by that. We get paid a little bit of money by the buyer, but we get paid the sales commission by the supplier. They're like, listen, our suppliers are we're not going to have your supply our suppliers pay you money. We'll pay you money, but we're not going to do that. And we said, well, I'm sorry, that's you know, and and we said, here's the way we do it. Here's here's a proposed contract, blah 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 blah. And then guess what happened? The phone didn't ring. They never called us back, and because um, we didn't listen to the client. Yeah. And then you know, then we said, you know, maybe. And, and here in the meantime, I'm thinking it is so hard to sell this, and and <laughs> I'm not going into all the details because the the buyers were resistant and the suppliers were resistant, and we're trying to force ourselves in the middle. And and uh, so, long story short, nine months later, General Motors General Motors came along, and we did a pilot project for them, and. They said, great. And they said, hey, we want to do a bigger contract with you. And we said, great. And they said, but yeah, this supplier sales commission thing's not going to work. And we said, uh, that's okay. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about how much money you'll pay us. We flipped the whole model. This is in like 1997. Remember that whole story? We started in 95, yeah. went public in 98, in 99 rather. 98, 99 were the years where we really took off. Explosive this was in growth. 1997. And yeah, we had like $1.8 million of revenue in 1997. 98, we had 8 million. 99, we had 23 million, right? Those numbers... It's really, that's really, really hard. Well, guess what? In 1997, we flipped the model and we decided, okay, let's let the, buy the buyers want to pay us. Let's, and we're creating a lot of value for them. Let's charge them for it. And boom, that was one thing that let the company take off because we listened to our client. Now, we, that was sort of a, a second or third order thing. We never would have even understood that that was an issue. Gee, the idea that buyers are going to fight us, suppliers are going to fight us in creating this new e-marketplace, e we never would have even learned all that had we not started the business, right? Yeah. And then the idea that, oh, that big buyers wanted to control, wanted to pay, and they didn't want to you know, force, whatever. We wouldn't have learned all that stuff. So we learned and we listened. We didn't listen fast enough. We never got, there, there's a story in Pittsburgh locally that Heinz Ketchup had a big fight with, with McDonald's like 30 years ago. And except for Pittsburgh, Heinz never had a McDonald's contract. I think McDonald's felt like, okay, in the local Pittsburgh market because of Heinz, and Heinz is less important now than it was 10 years yeah. ago because they've sold. But, you know, local, you know, franchises of McDonald's here carried Heinz ketchup. Anywhere else in the world, no Heinz ketchup because McDonald's held a grudge because of whatever happened 30 or 40 years ago, yeah. right? Procter & Gamble... All these years later, you know, the, the, the free markets years, the rebate years, they never got Procter & Gamble back as a client. Never. 
right? And that, I, I mean, that's a great line. That's a powerful lesson. Powerful lesson. So with with forever, we start forever, and I've got this guy, full-time guy focused on veterans. and I mean, all we're, we're trying different markets. We're doing advertising here or there. And we learned real quick, I mean, because we were listening, we learned real quick our market was, yeah, it's not middle-aged men. Yeah, there's a few. There's a few family guys who do genealogy and care, but the market, the market was moms, moms and grandmas who care about the family memories and who keep the photos and do the photo books. And, and, and it's, it's the moms, the women are the memory keepers in the family. And that's who we sell to. We don't, if you look at forever.com, if you go to our website, we're not anti, it's not like all pink or anything. It's, it's not. It, it's we, we don't exclude men. There's a way to brand something subtly in the direction that you know right. is going to be the most fertile right. ground. We try to be very, very focused on the moms while still being inclusive of the dads. But it's but it, let's face it, our business is like 95% mom yeah. and, gra- and grandma too. And that's the other thing too is there's, you know, the baby boom. Yeah, there are people who are like, you know, okay, boomer and stuff and all that. But hey, the baby boom is a huge market still. You know, yep. I am the... So I'm like the the pivotal year between baby boom and Gen X. I'm not really a boomer psychographically. The people 62, the people born in 62, 63, 64, are technically baby boom from a demo, you know from a demographic standpoint because the, the there was still a lot of births in those years. But we're different than the people born in the like before that in this in this. 60, 61, 50s, and you know, late 40s. We're just different. Yeah. We, we, we're post-60s revolution. We're post-Vietnam. We're, you know, and um, we're just different. And then, so we're more like Gen X, but, it's, it's a, but, but bottom line is from a demographic standpoint, the big, big bubble, the big boom years were 46 to 64. I was born in 64. There is a, I mean, the oldest boomers right now are 70, what, 73, yeah. 74. And in today's world, that's pretty young. So there's this huge, this huge group They're of still people have between, buying power. yeah, this huge people group people between 56 and 74 who are pretty tech. I mean, the the people who are who are older than the baby boom, they're much less technological than the baby boom people. Like the the older people didn't really like the the the, the World War II and before they didn't they haven't really adopted the technology. But the baby boom generation has adopted the technology, and they they have huge buying power. And they're the memory, and they're so so we have a lot of clients for Forever.com in that age group. So a lot of grandmas, and then a lot of moms, and we're working really hard to be appealing. We're not really worrying about teenagers and young twenty-somethings, but once that woman has a baby, we want her to be a Forever client. So that's what we we do with Forever.com. You've been so gracious with so much of your time, Glenn. I really appreciate you sharing all these stories with us. You've plugged forever.com plenty of times, but any other digital coordinates that you want to make sure people check out uh, while we have their ear here before we sign off? I'll make a quick point. This is one thing we're going to focus on with forever, one reason. And I'm, I, you know, and I apologize that I didn't get together with you and do this sooner. I meant to, and we just, you know, somehow last year went by and we never got, never made it happen, but I appreciate your having patience with me and of course. doing this anyway. I'm down to run it back too, if you want to sometime down the road. Well, good. And I'll tell you um, one thing I learned with free markets and we did very well because we did a lot of PR. And one thing I learned is that if someone is gracious enough to want to cover, you know, my company or me, I'm going to be generous with my time. Don't be, you know, here's one bit, bit of advice for, and this is true dealing with investors and dealing with VCs and dealing with clients, you know, and, and I could use more harsh language, but I will not on the recording, but don't be a jerk. Yeah. You know, be good to people. Be nice. It's like, hey, you want to be successful as, a, as an entrepreneur? Be nice. 
you know, there are exceptions. Okay, Steve Jobs wasn't so nice. I think, you know, I think uh, Gates has always been a pretty nice guy. I mean, okay, yeah. There, I mean, hey, leaders sometimes have to make tough calls. You know, you have to fire people. You have to give it. You have to give feedback when things aren't. You know, there's stories about every successful business leader that they were tough in a meeting or something. But you know, I, I think that I think that a lot of successful entrepreneurs are actually very um, civil with people. And uh, and I think you know if you're if you're going to be if you're going to try to be successful, it's good to make people like you, and that that comes from just being nice to people. Don't be a jerk. So I've always my approach to PR has always been you know when dealing with anybody in the press at all, no matter how big or small, is to be gracious and yeah. nice. And and um, it's worked out very very well. It worked out very well for us at free markets. It takes energy and investment, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah, in terms of. Where to check you guys out? DigitalCoordinatesForever.com. Obviously, yes. we're going to link in the show notes. Anything right. else you want us to link or point people towards? No, Forever.com is the place to go. Perfect. Um, that'll be linked in the show notes. You can find it in the app. We're probably listening to it right now. Or if you head on over to GoingDeepWithAaron.com slash podcast, you'll find the show notes for this. Wait, say that slower. GoingDeepWithAaron.com slash podcast. Thank you. You'll find it. <laughs> GoingDeepWithAaron.com. You'll find it for this and every single episode of the show. We're also going to link some other great interviews that we've done in the past, like Luke Skirman from Niche.com and some other characters from Pittsburgh's uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. Uh, But before we let you go, Glenn, I want to give you the mic one final time and give you the opportunity to issue an actionable personal challenge for the listeners. An actionable personal challenge for an actionable personal challenge for the listeners. I would say I would tie it to what we've said all along, which is if you are a entrepreneur. Go out there. Don't, or or, if, or just a, a person in your, I don't care whether you're in your mid-career or you're early in your career. The answer to the what do I do next question isn't that you're going to have all the answers. You Whatever the door is, you got to walk through it. You got to go do something. Don't, don't just sit back and, and question. Go throw yourself into something. And if you figure out that, you know, if you throw yourself into a new business and a year or two later figure out it's just not the right business, it's okay. You learn something. Yeah. Right. And you can tell other people about what you learned and maybe you get the credibility now to do better in something else. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of successful entrepreneurs were not successful the first time. Yep. So it's true entrepreneurially, right? Throw, you have a great idea. Okay. Don't question, take action, throw yourself in, do something and learn from it. Same thing with a career. You know, if you're 22 and you're trying to figure out what to do, nobody knows what they're going to do. The right thing is throw yourself into something. And if you, like like me, you, you threw yourself threw myself into the military. Okay, I, I, I learned a lot from it, but I didn't want to do it as a career. Okay, great. I learned I didn't want to do that, but I learned. And then, you know, marketing at Kraft General Foods. Okay, I learned a lot from it. I knew it wasn't the right, that big a company, that slow a company. It wasn't the right thing for me, but I learned a lot from it. And by throwing myself in, same thing with McKinsey when I was a consultant, by throwing myself into those things, I learned things and that eventually showed me my path. And and it and it's it doesn't end. You just have to keep, you know, how did what what was I going to do after I sold free markets? Well, I didn't know, but I I just kept trying stuff, you know, and and I didn't I didn't I didn't know that forever was going to be on my horizon. Yeah. You know, I just kept There's no you know, playbook. It's just like after graduation you were saying there's maybe a, a regimented system for the doctor, maybe somewhat for the lawyer. There also isn't a playbook for okay, you uh built a technology company and sold it for a handsome amount of wealth yeah. and profit. What do you do now? There isn't a playbook for that either. There's no playbook. But there are principles. Yeah. You know, and you can know what's important in life. You know, you can know that oh, you better better treat your family well, better prioritize them. Better, I know, I'd better do the right thing. I'd, I'd rather, you know, your reputation is really valuable. And if you are on it, and 
I look at the people we invested in who the five CEOs who were really successful for us with Mika and Becker are all extremely and different backgrounds, different parts of the country, different, but all extremely hardworking, extremely smart and extremely high integrity and all frankly, nice people too. people like I enjoy talking to. Yeah. And now one reason I'm not a VC anymore is then you got to deal with all the other people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, so I, I would just encourage people to go try something, but then keep in mind what's important and, and be ethical and be kind. Yeah, I love that. Well, I can say that I've absolutely loved talking with you, Glenn. Thank you so much for coming on the Thanks, podcast. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it very much. Yeah. We just went deep with Glenn Meekum. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening all the way through that interview with Glenn. We've linked in the show notes the interview that we did with Luke Skirman of Niche.com, who Glenn referenced in this interview. Uh, we also have a tremendous back catalog of interviews with all sorts of entrepreneurs, builders, innovators, doers. If you are feeling like the 400 plus back catalog is daunting, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn, and I'll learn a little bit more about you. I will make a personal recommendation for an interview interview or a episode that I think you will enjoy so that you can continue to learn right here at Going Deep with Aaron Watson. We've got a great episode coming for you next week as well. So keep it tuned and subscribed to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.